I thought two English accents in this in this group was too many, right? I, I knew. I'm not English. I'm Scottish. Be careful. Be very careful. Vanessa. How are you feeling today? Chipper, it seems. I, oh, I'm so chipper. I just came up with the best, absolutely best podcast headline I ever conceived. Yeah. Don't tell the people what it is. Make them go to the dispatch to find out. Okay. Yes. Don't even back, don't even date it and have them get like message you. Is it this one? Yes. What is this headline you're so proud of? If somebody figures that out, it will be embarrassing for them. It will be embarrassing for me. But you know, it's funny, you know, different places have different conventions for headlines and some audiences or outlets like the dispatch kind of lend themselves to shameless dad joke punnery mm-hmm. oh that's my favorite that is my favorite and then i don't let you have any fun in uncertain things I just shut down your puns whenever you pitch them and pitch them you do <laughs> you let me have them in the newsletter you let my pun flag fly that's true, but not for the episodes. It's not the tone we're going for. Yeah, you're very into the the one-two punch of mystery snark for uncertain. It's like like the headline is like, Ooh, what are we talking about? And then the, the subtitle is like, yuck, 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 yuck. That's <laughs> yes, what it is. That's, that's exactly it. <laughs> anyway, today. Today, we are thrilled to be sharing with you our first Live event, virtual, but live with people together from all over the world at the same time. And it was with pod favorites, Neil Ferguson and Martin Gurry. I mean, we didn't have to do very much at all. Neil and Martin really, really brought their A game. So. That was the best part about it, correct. Exactly. Uh, we, we, I think, it, it intervened for maybe, maybe a total of six minutes in the whole mm-hmm. event. And they were just able to run free with their vivacious disagreements. Yes. Well, for those who... If you don't know who Neil and Martin are, shame on you. Go back in our back catalog. We have a great conversation with both of them. Neil Ferguson, economic historian, columnist for Bloomberg. Senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford and author of many books, including Doom and the Great Degeneration. Uh, Martin Gurry, former CIA analyst, author of The Revolt of the Public. The Unofficial Uncertain Things Bible. Two brilliant gentlemen who we talked to about similar topics on different occasions and who we were, as you mentioned, quite glad to discover that they disagreed a lot, which wasn't, we didn't necessarily think or know that they would. So that was fun. So the theme that got this whole event together was the apocalypse because because we like talking about the, the possible ways in which our civilization could end. It started from me writing a piece for our newsletter. It was titled Cancel Vultures. See, punny title. That one I did come up with and you let me run with it. I let you have your wins. <laughs> um, the, it's, the, the idea of the newsletter was uh, following our conversation with Peter Turchin to tie in some of the threads from that conversation into previous talks we had with Guri and Ferguson. And you said, huh, maybe we should just bring them and, and have, have a panel. 
Um, and we reached out to Guri and Ferguson and they both said, yes, we'd love to talk to each other on, on your live event. So, uh, so there we go. We structured it around three or four different ideas that we cared about and we knew that they have been either writing or thinking about, um, in which our, our society is currently struggling. So we started with the, shall we say, the epistemic or our knowledge institutions, just to get our media bashing out of the way. From there, we got to the second point of contention between Neil and Martin, which is whether we are at a second Cold War and whether said war is likely to get warmer. And, and not just a little warmer, but like nuclear warmer. And then on that note, we turn to ask whether we are being too apocalyptic and how that plays into our depression epidemic. We got a great round of Q&A, which sadly, to me at least, we had to cut short. Uh, Vanessa, do you want to explain to the people why we had to cut our uh, Q&A short? Oh, Lord. I I was trying out a new setup. Well, first of all, we had technically only scheduled an hour and a half. So technically, we were not cut short in that. We were five minutes over, actually. But second of all, um, in the middle of the Q&A session, I realized that my computer was not charging. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out why In it, while trying to also moderate a panel discussion. And so I was ready for us to finish so that I could press stop and actually have the recordings from said discussion. Because if I hadn't, all would have been lost. And then it would have been a catastrophe. So catastrophe was averted. And we have a wonderful piece of audio out of it of you bolting to the <laughs> corner of your room to charge your computer at the very end. Um, but the Q&A portion, I wanted to talk about that. It was awesome. So we had a little bit of back and forth about how long the Q&A portion should be. And we settled on half an hour. Who knows, maybe in a future event, we'll actually extend it a little bit more because it was just so nice to hear people's voices because we're just, I mean, we talk about the void, but we also just talk into the void as podcast hosts. And so having people have real voices attached to real humans and real suits and, and outfits was just a really great experience for us. Especially some <laughs> of the suits. No, but seriously, everything you just said, plus kudos on the idea to cap attendance. We originally capped it at 35 attendees and we extended to 45 because of demand. But keeping it small actually allowed a higher percentage of people to participate, which felt more intimate and real. I don't know. I really like that. Also, thank you to everyone who subscribed to us as a result. And a few of you even uh, decided to become paid subscribers, which is amazing because you make it possible for us to keep doing this just thing that is just the two of us. Um, so thank you. Speaking of people who support us and allow us to do cool things, uh, shout out to Mr. Connor Lynch, who helped us produce the event. He was our wingman making it all happen. So thank you, Connor. And lastly, uh, Vic, we haven't forgotten about you. We usually do transcriptions a week after we publish the episode. Keep your eyes out on the uncertain.substack.com website. It will be there. Um, and I guess with that, Neil Ferguson and Martin Gurry live. Okay, I think we are ready to get started. Uh, welcome everybody to the first ever Uncertain Things live event. Uh, we are so excited to be here today. We have our esteemed guests, Neil Ferguson and Martin Gurry. 
We have a pretty exciting few moments up ahead for you. Uh, some great conversation followed by Q and A. Um, but you know what? We just want to get right into it. So, Adam, you want to you want to take us away with the first question? Okay, so navel gazing amoebas that we are as journalists, we're going to start by talking about the media. Martin wrote his incredible book, Revolt of the Public, about uh, which is the uh, unofficial, or have we decided that it's the official Uncertain Things Bible? He wrote about how technological change can affect social stability and specifically how social media and the changes that we've experienced in how we communicate information are at the root of growing social upset. You should read the book and you should listen to our episode with Martin. But one of the key processes that it describes is how 20th century centralized institutions, including established media, have lost their grasp and authority over the public. We are experiencing that as declining trust in media, but also in the way that the media plays into that loss of trust. So I want to bring up two pieces from the news recently. One, news coming from the Department of Energy and the FBI that the Lablick theory is being accepted more broadly as a likely explanation for the origin of COVID-19. If you lived in this world for the past three years, you know that many a prominent news outlet has for years downright dismissed this hypothesis as a kooky, slightly racist conspiracy theory. And it seems that despite the, the updates, most outlets are still refusing to fully acknowledge their mistake to themselves, it seems to me, as much as to their readers. On the other side of the political spectrum, we have the lawsuit by Dominion voting systems against Fox News during the discovery process of which we, uh, we found out, unsurprisingly perhaps, that during the post-election 2020 drama of Stop the Steal, which Fox covered heavily, many of the executives and hosts were internally discussing just how much they disbelieve the stories that they were peddling on their show, that they were feeding their audiences about uh, an alleged election fraud. In order to please their audience, in other words, they kept alive a lie that would culminate in the January 6th riot. Um, what's fascinating to me is the different types of media dishonesty where on the, the, the liberal side you encounter what seems to be in ideological blindness and an unwillingness to admit otherwise. Whereas on Fox News, the story is much more cynical. People know that they're promulgating lies and they do it nevertheless. So I want to start here and wonder what it means as we start building towards a unified apocalypse. What does it mean that our sources of information, our authoritative sources of information, are so corrupt either by ideological blindness or sheer mercenary cynicism? Well, I think there's always a danger in conversations about uh, journalism with journalists, because there's a tendency, uh, which is very advanced these days, for the news media to think that it's the story. And this uh, becomes a somewhat uh, uh, 
I think, circular conversation. I, I'm not sure that this is really the, the, the revolutionary development of our, our times. I'm in the midst of writing a book in which a great deal of the action takes place in the 1970s. Uh, what was the equivalent disaster which everybody was thinking about then? The answer is the Vietnam War. Uh, hardly need to tell uh, Martin this. And there was an official narrative, uh, which was that domino theory required the United States to shore up the government of Vietnam. Uh, and then it became clear that that was not entirely true. And with the uh, publication of the Pentagon Papers, uh, the public was suddenly treated to an inside uh, account of what, in fact, had happened in the 1960s and the reasons for the escalation uh, in Vietnam under Lyndon Johnson. There then was an attempt to shut that uh, door, disastrously unsuccessful attempt, uh, that then contributed to the crisis of the legitimacy of, of Richard Nixon's administration. If one goes back through the news coverage of, of Vietnam and then of Watergate, it's striking to me how, how familiar uh, the discussions are. Uh, on one side, uh, there's an administration that's abusing its power and seeking to exert uh, pressure, uh, uh, not only on its political opponents, but on its opponents in the press, ultimately resorting to illegal means to do that. On the other side, you have a public that is uh, increasingly polarized uh, on the issue, and uh, there are indeed outbreaks of, of, of violence uh, in, in the period, as well as a general sense of disenchantment with the system. So whenever people tell me that there's something very special about our situation in 2023, I say, could I introduce you to 1973? And, and you won't find that our position is a whole lot uh, worse. In fact, it's very similar. Uh, the Trump presidency ended with a massive crisis of legitimacy uh, at January the 6th. And, and the Nixon presidency, of course, ended in, in Watergate. Impeachment played a part in, in both cases. And the media became a story, which is what the media really loves. The New York Times loves nothing better than reporting on the New York Times. And I think that's all pretty familiar. The novel thing, and here, Martin, you may disagree with me, or you may agree wholeheartedly, the novel thing is clearly the internet and the advent of social media, to use the term uh, casually, because ultimately, traditional media have become quite reliant on social media for uh, raw content. And I think the novel thing is really the way in which news has become uh, structurally different in the age of the internet. That the old institutions play their old game. Governments try to manipulate the media. The newspapers want to write about themselves. That's all old hat. But what's novel is platforms such as Twitter, uh, but also increasingly uh, a TikTok, in which a considerable amount of power is, is given to the user, to ordinary people who aren't journalists, to generate uh, news and commentary. And of course, and uh, both Martin and I have written about this, the ecosystem of the internet went from being very decentralized to being quite centralized around network platforms very fast. 
it became monetized through ad sales. It became corrupted by bots. It's continuing to be corrupted. The corruption will not stop and it will get worse with uh, artificial intelligence. And that's what's new. Not the stuff about uh, traditional media, not the ways in which government tried to manipulate it, but the complete transformation of the nature of news and our perception of the news by the internet and the network platforms. Well, I, I would say I, I probably have an advantage over you, Neil. Uh, you, you're, you look very distinguished and graying, but I am way older than you are. I was there in the 70s, okay? And um, my... My sense is there were many similarities. There were profound differences, profound differences. Um, I think at the core, uh, the Vietnam era, Vietnam controversy was about um, shared values, who was right and who was wrong, all right? And I think once it became, it took a long time for the American public, actually, it took years and years and I was a young man waiting to see whether I was going to be drafted or not at that time. Um, it took years to tip over into a majority of the public being against the war. Um, it took a lot of um, uh, television theater in, in the Senate uh, to persuade people that what Nixon had done made it impossible for him to stay president. But they were, we were debating more or less within a single moral structure, within a single belief about facts, all right? I think the place we're at right now is, is extraordinarily different. I think the causes are what you mentioned. I think this gigantic upsurge of information, this gigantic babble of voices that um, Jonathan Haidt calls the Tower of Babel. Um, and and what we are debating today, what is in dispute on, on almost every occasion, is not the facts, but the frameworks that constitute the facts. So there's a battle of frameworks that goes back and forth, and and um and the, and the frameworks seem to shift in the strangest way since there is no authority from the top, and we can, I guess we can start start with that. So see, the elites have lost lost trust, and they are the ones who interpret the world for us. Um, I mean, when Nixon was was uh, basically forced to resign, um, poor Ford stepped in. I mean, this is a guy who had been in the, uh, in the in Congress all his life. Uh, and I mean, pretty much everybody rallied behind him. It's not like he, he we were cheering, but everybody rallied behind him. He had at least our best wishes. Um, right now, there is no trust. There is no ability to gather trust because unless you can live in the same framework, you can't persuade people of anything. Um, and I think that is a profound consequence of, of the tsunami of information that has bashed institutions that simply we're not adapted for it. It seems to me that we're not, we're not that f far apart. I mean, in the end, I think if one asks how big a disruption has there been in our time, you could say much as, as Martin has said, well, Trump uh, went so far as to instigate insurrection. Uh, and uh, that was a, one of the great bungled coup attempts of, of modern times. Uh, but actually, the system uh, withstood that. Joe Biden himself, a 1970s figure, became president. Sure, but in part, that's because of the incompetence of the planning. In part, I mean, it's hard to dignify it with, with the word planning. But the point is, the continuity of, of uh, the system striking Joe Biden's uh, sworn in, 
embarks on an entirely classic progressive democratic governmental course. We're going to spend more money. We're going to grow the government. Progressive in the original 20th century sense. In the original sense of, of Roosevelt and Johnson. And uh, quietly retains a number of Trump's policies. And so we had uh, a, a very shocking event. But what's really interesting to me is how very quickly we moved on. And this may be a big difference uh, between then and now. Uh, new cycles have become much shorter. Uh, I was looking at a, some interesting data on that this week. You know, the average story has a three-week lifespan. If you had told me even a year ago that the US government would announce that it had shot down unidentified flying objects over uh, the United States, I would have said, man, that'll be the biggest story of 2023 and maybe of the 2020s. The UFO, I mean, they, they called them unidentified flying objects. And that story was gone in even less than three weeks. Uh, so I think what's fascinating to me is this extraordinary attention deficit disorder that means that news is news, even a coup, even our UFOs over America. It's like, yeah, that was interesting for two weeks, but week three, it's like next. That I think is different because in the 70s, Watergate was a story for three years. And I mean, it was really uh, amazing how long that story kept going. And the, the journalists uh, uh, unceasingly uh, drummed it into people, even when there was viewer and reader fatigue. So I maybe that's the thing that, that is interesting here. It's not just there's a legitimacy crisis. I think there was a pretty big legitimacy crisis for the elite at the end of Vietnam and at the time of Watergate. What I'm really struck by is we just have such a short attention span that it'd be impossible to do anything like Watergate now. So here's why I think the Lablik actually is interesting. It's not just that established media seems incapable of moving on because they were so attached to the idea that the the Lablik is nothing but a conspiracy theory that they're now incentivized by covering their asses and are resistant of admitting a mistake. What's fascinating is the total lack of curiosity from people in the media industry. That's the thing that really draws my attention is you get confirmation from government agencies from the quote-unquote establishment that the lab leak theory has some grounding, if not high likelihood, of being correct. But still, the, the way that people who you would expect to show a modicum of curiosity seem to be actively looking for ways to resist and reject any kind of evidence that supports the hypothesis. And it shows up with real journalists and it shows up with people in the entertainment industry like, like Colbert and The Daily Show. People who you'd, you'd assume have no actual horse in the race joking about, oh, the Department of Energy says so. I'm, I'm going to wait for the DMV to weigh in. What is that? Read paragraph three in the original Wall Street Journal article about, about the Department of Energy and you'll understand why the agency weighed in. Um, I, I, are they being intentionally thick? I, I just think that this aggressive incuriosity, aggressive incuriosity is something new. I feel like it has to do with ideological capture. And 
a clinging to overarching narratives. Like what what else would shut down your curiosity to that extent, if not that, right? And, and, and I think it's related to what Neil was saying in terms of the news cycle being so short. If no one event can hold your attention, then you've got to map an event onto a broader ideological narrative in order to make it more interesting and, and essentially stickier. But that's just the thing. What ideology exactly is being served or bolstered by denying the lab leak theory? The, I mean, I mean, the, the, the latest reports came from the Biden administration, even though there were still ongoing debates internally about it. But you know, it's, that's fine. But what I'm seeing from the information industry, from the knowledge industry, is nihilism or at least a complete loss of the ability to to be curious and ask what what's going on here well ra- rational debate is very difficult if your first uh, question to yourself is what's the other side's position on this because mine can't be that now this uh i think is part of trump derangement syndrome that in the wake of trump's uh, election uh Many people, including in in the universities as well as in comedy shows and uh, on mainstream liberal media, would tend to simply ask the question, if Trump's in favor of this, if that's Trump's position, then it must be wrong. Now, if you remember the way that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic began in the United States, initially, the left were the skeptics they were more likely to say that it was just influenza and that Trump, by referring to the Wuhan flu, was, of course, just engaged in racism. I can remember the pieces that appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post, which made it seem as if the most significant thing about the pandemic was what it might do to race relations in the United States. Because Trump had staked out a fairly anti-Chinese position from the outset of his campaign, there was a reflexive tendency to think that anything that was negative about China couldn't possibly be right because it fit into Trump's narrative. Therefore, you couldn't possibly endorse it. Now, I was writing Doom in 2020, and it was very clear then that there were problems with the wet market hypothesis about the origins of of COVID. It was distinctly plausible that there had been a lab leak. It was also already obvious that gain-of-function research had been going on into bat viruses and that the US had supported that research. All of that was quite obvious uh, in 2020. You're right, Adam, that the incuriosity and willingness to censor the story, not only by uh, mainstream media, but also by people in epidemiological uh, circles. Think of the the kind of mood that prevailed in some universities on, on this issue. The really remarkable thing is that ideological commitments, partisan affiliations transcended the basic curiosity that I still felt and I still feel about the origins of the pandemic. We're not even curious enough to have a proper inquest into what happened. Why did the United States handle this so badly? Lots of lockdown, lots of disruption, and still lots of deaths. There is no desire to answer that question. There won't be anything like the 9-11 Commission. I know that Philip Selick has tried to make it happen and been defeated because ultimately there's much more interest in partisan validation than in finding out what the hell happened. And that's, that's disturbing. 
I would I would add to that um, my friend Andre Mir, whose book um, Post Journalism, I recommend to everyone, um, talks about how the ideological and sort of narrative anchoring of of the media leads to what he calls discourse narrowing. I mean, there's suddenly there are all kinds of subjects that nobody pays attention to, and then a handful of subjects that everybody hammers on. So you have this enormous, at the moment, this enormous um, flow of information as never in history. I mean, many times, many levels of magnitude as never in history. And this conformity in the very uh, poverty of, of, of subjects that actually get discussed with any kind of depth. Well, not to bring in the C word into the conversation, but Chomsky's uh, manufactured consent is is also very much around that idea, so, but, and which interestingly was a, about Vietnam originally. Right. I thought the C word was China. I thought you were about to segue us, Adam. No, that would have been too smooth. All right, then I'm going to take us there. So we've already touched on it a little bit with UFOs and the lab leak, but I do want to talk about China more fully. So Neil... You wrote a Bloomberg piece recently, which cited a Rand Corporation study, uh, What Makes a Power Great? And in it, they say it's namely economic productivity, technological innovation, social cohesion, and national will. So I want to ask you about these last two, social cohesion and national will, because both seem in short supply these days in the U.S. Uh, so, Neil, um, what's your take on the lack of a strong, cohesive, optimistic narrative about who we are as a superpower? Like, does this lack of a narrative inevitably set us up to cede power and influence to China? Well, the Rand study was interesting, although I went on to point out that if you really want to define national power, uh, the ability to manufacture weapons and ammunition for a sustained period is probably somewhat more important right, when right, push right. comes to shove. And, uh, and, and, you know, in any case, you can feel very uh, lacking in social cohesion until someone uh, a- attacks uh, your territory and kills your people. And lo and behold, your national cohesion comes back. I mean, Ukraine was a deeply divided country. I know it well. I've visited it almost every year over the last decade. Uh, nothing has united that country, uh, perhaps in its entire history, quite the way that the Russian invasion of last uh, February uh, did. So I, I think these sorts of worry tend to get overdone. And uh, it's a somewhat academic view of, of, of power in, the, in my view, the real problem the United States has at the moment is that it is in a Cold War. It's in a new Cold War with China. It's been in that Cold War for at least four or five years. The Chinese have probably been in it in their own minds for longer than that. And we do not have the kind of capabilities that uh, that we had in the first Cold War. And the, the opposition the rival superpower is significantly more technologically capable than the Soviet Union was. And that's really concerning. The, the thing that stunned me when I delved into it was just how quickly the United States would run out of hardware, of precision missiles, if it went to war with China over Taiwan today. In fact, we... It's already struggling to provide to Ukraine, right? Our stocks of certain categories of weapon have essentially been exhausted or are close to being exhausted by... One, in effect, is a proxy war that we're waging 
against Russia with Ukrainian troops. So that's the big story in my view. We are we don't have the military industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower worried about uh, because we are a really no longer the world's dominant manufacturing power. China now occupies that position. And China certainly could churn out a lot more weapons than the United States were it to be involved in that kind of war. Okay, so Neil, we're going to get back to your point about capabilities. But first, I want to get your thoughts on something, both of you, and especially Martin, actually, because I still think that there's something different about what's going on here that does have something to do with social media and the way that it colors our engagement with the world. So here's my totally, totally unscientific survey of this question. But I've been having conversations with my Israeli friends for, oh, it wasn't over seven years since the Trump phenom has arisen in the U.S. about why things seem to have disintegrated so terribly in this country in terms of the political discourse. And my working theory for a while was that Israel just still has, as Martin said, a shared set of values. We work on a framework of familiarity. And while we may disagree about who's right and who's wrong, we're at least having the same conversation. And I thought this had everything to do with how small Israel is, the uh, cultural similarity, the the scale, and the fact that we had the experience of being under threat as, you know, as a unifier. But then a friend of mine suggested that maybe the the problem here is actually a lot more Martin Gurry-esque. Maybe it's about the fact that uh, social media and specifically Twitter has had low penetration in Israel at the time in contrast to the U.S. And I said, okay, that's interesting. If that's the case, let's see what happens if and when Twitter starts taking over the, the, the Israeli conversation. And sure enough, five, six years later, Twitter is the public square in Israel as well. And the tone of the conversation has completely changed. In fact, the fractiousness that's going on in the Israeli conversation reminds me of the American political discourse during the Trump years. Much more siloed, much more heated, and not at all conversational. In fact, everything has become more American, as I often complain. There's, uh, there's been an adoption of American memes into the Israeli polity, many of which don't make sense at all. You sometimes hear people talking about the Second Amendment in the context of Israeli politics, a country that has no constitution, let alone amendments. But all of this is symptomatic of the way that the political conversations around the world seem to have converged into a, a singular vague mush of international culture war that no longer really makes any sense anywhere and is not really about policies or the realities in which people live, but it's about showing allegiance to an abstract tribe that only exists online. And as a result, there's a loss of solidarity and connection to people who live next door, who are your neighbors, who share your immediate concerns and experiences, but who technically belong to the wrong tribe in this global culture war. Yeah, let's let's put the, the people next door um, issue to later, because I think it's an important one. But um, 
I think part of the difference between uh, my youthful days in the 70s and, and uh, the 60s, alas, uh, and, and, uh, and now is we do spend, I think the average American spends something like seven hours online, right? Okay, we plunge into this, this thing and we are, um, it's, it's like the, the um, CD subconscious of the human race, like the reptile brain of the human race. Okay. And things that are usually not said out loud are, are screamed out loud. The discourse is, is, uh, I mean, I remember in the old days, the protest, Vietnam protests, of which I was an honorable attendant. Um, when you, you used the, the word fuck, it was like, whoa, we are really being edgy here, you know? Now, I mean, I can't go to streaming television without three out of four words. That's the one. <laughs> So you plunge into this medium and everything is coarsened. Everything is kind of like the, the, what Freud would have called the id. We're living in the, in the id of the human race. Um, and I think that reflects back out when, because the, the battles are fought in that medium, seven hours you live in that you're an American. Uh, and, um, you're not, there's no incentive to come to arrangements and don't there. The incentive is to strike a pose, to get a following, to be the loudest voice, to, you know, be the edgiest yet. So I think there's something in there. And there is also one last thing. There is the person you are. When you go in there, and I think we talk about that enough, right? Because when you go into this medium that we're now sharing, okay, you're you're you in a sense, but you you kind of radically transformed. The, dig- the digital self is flat. It, it's ahistorical. It's decontextualized. It's almost infantile. And you know, infants have what they call a grasping reflex. You know, I think people just want to grasp. To something, right? So, you know, it, it, if you want, for example, um, you know, you want community, it, mob behavior feels like community. So you, you get, you, that gets perverted into mob behavior and many other kind of similar things like that, where, where you are reaching for something meaning, you're reaching for meaning, you're reaching for certainty and ending up almost at its opposite because you're just clinging to something or someone. I think the other point, Adam, which, uh, you've raised is that on on global platforms there is convergence, and so it's not just that Israel developed uh, a Trumpy style of of politics or or American style polarization between uh, bien pensant the secular liberal types and 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 populist nationalists. The same happened in Brazil. The same it seems has happened in almost any. A country that has exposure to these these platforms, so I think that's not entirely surprising. If you create global giant global networks, then the the things that go viral will go viral everywhere. They're like the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The question is how how permanent is this transformation? It seems to me that. One possibility exists that we we may be underestimating because we are who we are. We do what we do. We may fail to realize that for many people, those hours online are mostly spent consuming sports, uh, videos of animal uh, animals, 
you know, the dancing ferrets. They, they, they're not Guilty, actually yeah. consuming toxic political content all the time. And, and that's really quite a minority activity. It's always been a mistake to infer reality from Twitter. And that's, I think that's something that, that I've become very conscious of. Uh, you might as well infer it from, from TikTok, and that might actually be a better guide. The other thing which I would, would emphasize is, uh, to paraphrase you know, Mike Tyson, every society's polarized until it gets smacked in the mouth. And let's remember, 9-11's not that long ago. It's a lot more recent than Vietnam. And it, it was remarkable how very quickly after the terrorist attacks of 2001, American unity surged. And it remained quite durable through that 12 or, or 24 month period until things began to go wrong in, in Iraq. So my sense is that all of these polarized societies, including Israel, would still react somewhat as Ukraine did, were they to suffer a really lethal blow by, by a foreign aggressor. And th- th- this just hasn't happened to the United States for a while. A balloon over Montana doesn't come close. Uh, but but were there to be uh, were there to be a, a, a conflict? Let's imagine the U.S.-China relationship deteriorates very rapidly, which is perfectly plausible in my view. We're at that stage of the Cold War where you go from Korea to Cuba only much more fa- much more rapidly than happened in Cold War One. If the United States and China go eyeball to eyeball over Taiwan, I would I would predict a, a significant decline of that polarization. There's already a bipartisan consensus on China. It's about the only bipartisan issue in America today. And I'm struck by how, how both sides are competing to see who can be most hawkish on China. I think the American public is not that far behind. Polling shows really big shifts in t- towards hostility towards China over the last few years. And in that sense, I think the polarization is a phenomenon of peacetime, just in the way that Britain was highly polarized in the 1930s. Uh, the debates at, at, at Oxford's Union about would you fight for king and country divided the, the elites, and I think that reflected a broader division. That was all gone by 1940. I definitely take your point that this type of polarization requires a degree of peace. This is actually something that I've been referring to often as peace privilege, that you get to occupy yourself in this amorphous culture war, as opposed to worrying about existential threats. In fact, you can even argue that the reason that American style polarization has entered the Israeli bloodstream is because Israel has experienced a decade of relative quiet and prosperity. Despite everything, Israel too has experienced a moment of peace privilege. Martin makes the point in his book that a lot of the this energy towards rebellion that has been bubbling up over the past 10 years has a lot to do with boredom. That's the Fukuyama point that once the liberal democratic project has won, the public is going to rebel against it precisely out of something between ennui and boredom. But that doesn't mean that the ensuing Sunni Shiite divide that is 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 now playing out in the U.S. this religious war between right and left won't outlive this moment of peace and prosperity. And in fact, there are signs that these divisions persist 
and even heighten during moments of real threat. Think natural disasters like the blizzard in Texas or the fires in California or accidents like the train derailment in Ohio. Uh, the, the, I don't I don't recall any sense of unity emerging from those moments. Yeah, but I think I think Neil just phrased it as a question. And I think that's that's probably the most important question right now. Right. Is is to what extent is this a permanent structural uh, horror that we're living through? To what extent is it we're living in this crazy world of fumes inside uh, um, the Internet? And that takes us back to the neighbors. Right. And I very firmly have this principle, which is, you know, I, I go online and go Famous people like Trump and and, uh, and Biden are yelling at me online and people want me to do this and do that and the horrible things are being said of each other. Then I, then I, and I despair. And then I lift my eyes and you guys can't see it, but there's my window out there. And it, well, while all these horrors are happening in my screen, there's my neighbors. They're walking their dogs, they're jogging, they're clipping their, you know, their bushes. And they have no notion, because I'm Cuban, I can tell you when a society is really broken. I, I came from one, okay? You know, they have no notion of how amazing it is to watch that and how unaware they are of their own freedom and their own security, right? So which is real and which is not, that is the most profound question right now, I think. Okay, before we turn to the question of mental health, I want to get back to Neil's point about the possibility of the Cold War turning hot. Is this a threat you feel we're not taking seriously enough? Well, I mean, Martin can comment on this too, I'm sure. The, the, the United States defense establishment is uh, a very, very expensive operation. We spend an awful lot of money uh, on projects to produce the next generation fighter plane uh, or the next generation uh, submarine. And the reality is that, uh, as we can see in Ukraine, uh, 21st century warfare will still require lots of tanks, artillery pieces, uh, shells, uh, and for that matter, the 21st century piece drones, uh, unmanned uh, uh, vehicles of varying kinds. And it's just hard to mass produce those with the industrial base that we have today. Uh, and, and I think that's important because latent in any Cold War is the possibility of hot war. And, and not just proxy wars. We, we need to bear in mind that if there's a war over Taiwan, it has clearly the possibility to escalate into a large scale conflict, regional, if not global. Japan would be a combatant without question. There's no way the United States could uh, fight a war to defend uh, or liberate Taiwan without Japan's involvement. Uh, and the scale of such a conflict, Jim Stavridis tried to visualize it in a recent book, would be absolutely cataclysmic much, much larger than the war in, in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I do think this would focus minds like nothing else, nothing quite like a sinking aircraft carrier to uh, put aside the petty disputes uh, of the internet. And this is the difference between war and natural disaster, Adam. I, I'm a natural disaster, you, like a pandemic or an earthquake or whatever, you know, you can turn that into, into retail politics. You can make that partisan issue. But an attack on US forces 
or U.S. civilians is a completely different thing, uh, particularly if there's... Because of the agency? Yeah. War is different because we think of it as a man-made disaster and we regard, not unreasonably, uh, there as being malice uh, at work. So I think that would tra- drastically alter the, the landscape. And I do think the, the seeds of national unity have already been planted in the debates over Chinese economic, the Chinese economic challenge, China's responsibility for the pandemic. Uh, you know, we've got a, a measure taking shape at the moment to ban TikTok in the United States. The U.S. Congress is on the warpath. The U.S. Commerce Department's imposed really quite stringent sanctions on on the Chinese economy in the last uh, in the last year. To an extent that people underestimate, we are on the road to war with China. The Chinese see that. Listen to what Xi Jinping just said in Beijing, and this makes all of our all of our kind of meme battles, the endless and ultimately tedious debates about. But it all will pale into utter insignificance if there's a war over Taiwan. So with that in mind, is the campaign that we're supporting in Ukraine, do you see that as a distraction or as good signaling that the U.S. will stand by its proxies? It, it plays exactly the same role in Cold War II that the Korean War played in Cold War I. It's the first hot war that makes you realize the new geopolitical landscape. And that's why... It's so important that last month, Anthony Blinken said, we think the Chinese are thinking of providing lethal aid to Russia. They must not do that. I mean, of course, we're providing any amount of lethal aid to Ukraine. If the the warning against China supporting Russia with lethal aid, I mean, China's already exporting all kinds of non-lethal and dual-use stuff to China, to to Russia. That's That's the classic Cold War paradigm where both sides end up arming their, their proxies. Uh, but we'll get to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was, of course, the most dangerous moment of Cold War One. I think much more quickly than we we did in 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 the nineteen fifties and sixties. I think we'll get to that Taiwan crisis quite quickly, and that will be an absolutely decisive moment in world history. Because if there's a war, it will be disastrous economically and in other ways. If the U.S. folds, that will be the end of U.S. Uh, predominance. Uh, if the U.S. succeeds in defeating China, that will reassert U.S. predominance. These are the big issues that are coming down the pike fast. It could be next year if the Taiwanese election produces a result that be- Beijing really doesn't like. Okay, we said we we're going to talk about the mental health epidemic. So <laughs> um, with the granted possibility of a nuclear standoff, are we, we society, not just Vanessa and I, being too much or too little catastrophical in our mindset. Seeing the state of depression, widespread depression in the U.S., you've made a point, Neil, in one of your articles that we have been so focused on teen depression that we've myopically missed the point that this is actually a society-wide problem. Deaths of despair going up all over the country, opiate epidemic, fentanyl epidemic, suicides. We are a sad and lonely country at this moment. Is our depression the cause or the result of our miserable politics? I mean, one question I would ask is, um, with with um, those kind of pathologies, and, and the younger you get, 
the more uh, severe they become. And I was just thinking about that because, I mean, the first thing you need uh, if you're going to go to war is, uh, unfortunately, a goodly supply of young men, all right? And I look at the generation just coming up, the Zoomers, and it is the most fragile and... um, sort of unrealistic, I would say, generation. I think we boomers are pretty damn unrealistic, but but what's coming up uh, with the Zoomers is the idea that um, you know, words mean harm and that we, we, um, we're supposed to you know, somehow not say certain things, not, be, not believe certain things, be, be given safe space. Now, um, the question, as I was uh, listening to Neil, is, is this a generation that even if we rally together, and by the way, I am not a hundred percent sure that's going to happen. I, it might, I would hope that we would, um, but I'm not sure that we will. Uh, but even if we rally together, do we have the human material? Forget about the factories, the human material that would win a war. Well, the, the answer to the question, if you believe the youth risk behavior survey that was just published uh, by CDC is no, no chance uh, I'll just give you some examples. 30% of high school girls considered attempting suicide during the past year. Uh, 24% made a suicide plan during the past year. That's what they say. Now, that uh, that translates, it seems to me, probably into a rather implausibly large number of suicide attempts. And I think we must acknowledge here that some of what's going on is almost a social competition to see who has the most uh, trauma. Uh, it's not really the teenagers who are committing suicide, and this was the key point of the piece. It's actually the middle-aged and interestingly predominantly white Americans who are succumbing to what Angus Deaton uh, uh, called deaths of despair. And these deaths of despair include uh, alcohol, drug, uh, and other overdoses, as well as suicide with firearms. I'm more worried, actually, about those deaths of despair than I am about the 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 suicidal fantasies uh, or broodings of, of teenagers. But I think if you add it all together, there's no way you can avoid concluding that something's very wrong with the mental health of Americans at all, pretty much all ages. Maybe the the boomers are the least affected by this. And I I I delved into this out of a kind of sense of uh of of shock that things have have got this bad one can't blame this all in the pandemic. The pandemic certainly made it worse. But the deaths of despair were there before. Indeed, Dayton tra- traced at least some of them back to the financial crisis. But this is a remarkable phenomenon. And, and to go to your question, Martin, it could be that our society is just too sick as well as too divided to withstand the, the, the challenge of, of, of a conflict. Then it would be France 1940. And I, I do find myself going back to Sartre more and more, uh, and the, the great trilogy that he, he wrote around the debacle of French defeat and asking myself, you know, are we that, are we that bad? And would we, would we fold that easily? I, I think not, because I think, I think if one, like you, looks out the window, uh, or if one travels around the country, if one gets away from the, the capitals of neurosis on the coastal, in the coastal cities, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like France on the eve of the, the debacle. But it's, it's, it's striking. And I think if one were to get comparable data, survey data from, uh, or suicide data from European countries would not look as bad, I'm pretty sure. 
Also, to speak in defense of the neurosis on the coasts, living in a place that has experienced several psychic breaks over the past several years, New York City, I think that as long as you step outside of a few neighborhoods in Brooklyn where people really do perpetually live in search of the next reason to despair and maybe get angry, you'll find that most people just want to live and and spend time with people that they care about. It's shocking. I think that's why I agree with the person next door hypothesis and why I'm not as pessimistic as my questions may suggest. Well, the media consumption habits of of our fellow liberal elites, I think, is far more damaging to our our psyches and the, the actual people around us in our in our liberal cities. I mean, one interesting point to, to add, Vanessa, is when when teenagers are asked why they're uh, so gloomy or depressed or suicidal, they do often cite climate change. And I think it's at least arguable that the constant repetition of alarmist accounts of the imminent end of the world due to climate change has added to the sense of uh, despondency amongst young people. They, they get a lot of this uh, at school as well as on social media, as well as on mainstream uh, media. Greta Thunberg's become the personification of this mood. And it's always worth reiterating that when talking about things like teen anxiety, the problem is never the teenagers. It's almost always the adults and the information they're feeding the kids or the, the, the behavioral patterns that they are cultivating. And climate change is a good example because it shows how arguably good intentions can lead to generational anxiety that don't even end up advancing the purported cause of addressing environmental concerns. Yeah, and I, I don't know how good the intentions are. And I, I would add to to, to uh, um, the climate change, um, all these ideas associated with um, with identity, which uh, when you turn to race, basically make it seem like their progress is impossible, right? We're a systemically racist country. Nothing will ever change. When it comes to gender, it's this massive confusion. You can be any one of the 72 genders. And I mean, okay, I was a young man once going through puberty. If somebody had told me you could be one of 72 things, I would have dropped dead on the spot. I mean, it would just would have been too tough. So I think uh, th- th- all these ideas... Uh, way on young people. And, and I think they, they, I mean, there are people who believe them very, very, um, intently. Um, and mostly there are people who are not, I don't think, uh, happy with our traditional way of life. I mean, they want to change us radically. So there, there's an intent behind all this. I mean, to defend some of those people, there there is a trade-off with that, you know, exploration of sexual and gender identity. You know, you get freedom to pursue whatever it is you are or you need or want to be. And the trade-off is the uncertainty, which can have the psychological side effects of depression and anxiety. I don't see it as about freedom, at least not the way that I understand the word. I see a lot of attempting to belong to groups. I see a lot of lists of prescribed, um, pseudo-prescribed categories where you can check your own box, but not so much be yourself and don't give a crap about 
how it's perceived. It's the most conformistic moment in my long lifetime. And the young are the most conformistic of all. And I asked the young woman, I said, you know, when I was young, um, uh, I mean, all people would tell us, you're supposed to be this way. This is the way you're... And we would just give them the middle finger. I mean, it was like, you know, no, that's not the way it's going to happen. Um, and that made us feel free, okay? And um, she said, yeah, the difference is we don't fight the older generation. The older generation, actually, we get along with great. It, it's somebody among ourselves that if we say the wrong thing, will turn on us. So it's this terrible dynamic of not knowing exactly what is the minefield you're going to die on, right, at any given moment. Okay, we should open up the floor now to questions. Um, so we have one ready from Vic about the problem with the polarization in education today, both in the academy, but also on the internet. Um, the problem with that being, of course, the internet has a tendency to polarize people even more. Um, so Neil, why don't you take this one first? I think there's a really serious crisis of American education right now. And it extends from the elite universities where I've spent much of my career all the way down uh, to the most uh, junior public schools. It probably has a lot to do with the way teacher training has become itself a vector of ideological uh, indoctrination. Uh, it has a lot to do with the power of teachers' unions uh, and the peculiar institution of tenure. But whatever the explanation, I have lost confidence in American education to the point of not wanting to educate my uh, sons uh, here in the belief that that not only is the education dangerously close to indoctrination in places, but also that it's just not very good. I mean, American kids are not well trained in, in the fundamental skills uh, when it comes to mathematics. Uh, the literacy numbers are, are lousy. You look at the PISA scores if you want data on that. And, and this is a big problem. And you're right, Vic, to mention it, because ultimately the United States rose to power not because of the exceptional geographical location, not because of the natural resources. It, it really rose because the United States attracted very talented people from all over the world and educated them better than elsewhere. And the education was better in the 19th century and better in the 20th century than the education available to most people in most of the world. And that's not true anymore. And that's really probably a bigger problem than anything we've talked about so far. I mean, all I would add would be um, that it, in many ways and at every level, and Neil's right about that, uh, education, uh, given these ideological imperatives that I, I mentioned earlier, has become sort of like a self-lobotomizing process, right? It's like, uh, who are we? Well, we are our past, right? That's our, our, our communal, our shared memory. Well, if we live in a systemically evil society, then obviously the past is something to be discarded, not to be studied, right? Um, and the literature that was part of that past, and that is to be part of our DNA and cultural DNA for sure, uh, is to be rejected because mostly white males and who cares what they have to say. Um, so I, I think that the kinds of, of knowledge that in, in times of trouble people turn to, which is in the past, they look at this history and look at this, you know, poem. I mean, poetry is what I go to when, when I am troubled, right? I feel like that's way better than any kind of preaching, any kind of uh, prose. It, just, it reaches your soul. If we discard literature, um, 
we are really lobotomized. We are, we are, we lose ourselves in a, in a certain way. And I think our education today is well on the way to doing that. Okay, let's go for another question. Oh, hi, everyone. Thank you for the talk. That was, that was excellent. Um, so I am from London and in my 20s. And I was just wondering, a uh, shorter question, uh, what is the biggest threat that is keeping you up at night? Is it the escalation with China? Or is it something completely different? And then maybe as a follow-up, at least most of my peers here in London, if you ask them what threats keeps them up at night, it is the end of the world through climate change. And I was just wondering, um, like, you know, why there is such a disconnect between what people have anxiety over. Martin, why don't you go first? Oh, okay. Well, what keeps me up at night is I am not, I am much more sanguine about China than Neil is. I, I do not believe, I mean, what do I know? Having lived through the old Cold War, this one doesn't feel like one to me yet. Uh, it's missing a powerful, powerful ideological element, which was really what gave the Cold War it, its salience. Um, I feel like we are, as, as the moment when the, uh, the printing press was assembled and within a hundred years, Europe was plunged into the third year's war. Uh, we are in a moment of informational transformation in, in our structure. And many things happen that we, we think we're doing one thing, but, but there's a knockoff effect and something else happens. Like in the printing press, you print a, a hymnal with three words that are different from mine. Now I have to kill you, right? So that's a 30 years war. And I'm sure if you went to the 30 years war and asked, what do you think of the printing press? Any sane person would say that's the most horrible, destructive innovation. Get rid of it, please. And it turned out to be, of course, the most liberating innovation ever. But we're in that early moment today. And, and, and it's a bumpy ride for democracy. And, and I'm a pretty simple believer in democracy. I don't have a whole lot of nuance to it. And my, what, Keeps me up at night is I'm going to end up in Cuba again. In terms of censorship or, or what specifically? In, in terms of any number of things, but that, that being one of them. The one other one being a, a loss of, um, loss of, um, faith in democracy. So we go to a strong man or we, or we disintegrate, which I think is actually more likely. We disintegrate into a bunch of war bands and uh, are incapable of organizing anything on a national level. It can be, it can happen in many number of ways. I don't pretend to be a prophet. But that's what keeps me up at night. It's a loss of democracy, the end of democracy. Hard for me to disagree with what Martin said, because the, the book, The Square and the Tower, basically is based on that analogy with the 17th century and the idea of the, yeah, the, great book, as the printing press. Uh, and and the, the only thing I would add is that the difference between now and the 17th century is, is nuclear weapons. And I think we decided to stop worrying about them after 1991. And, and that that was a mistake because uh, they're there uh, and they are the thing that that really would keep me awake at night if I had trouble sleeping. I mean, logically, that's just the thing that makes the 21st century and the second half of the 20th century scarier than previous centuries. We do have the capacity to destroy vast numbers of people very, very quickly with those weapons. But I actually have a terrible confession to make to Will. I know I should worry about nuclear war or indeed the 30 years war, but in practice, because I belong to the, the generation of the, the, that was born in the 1960s, I worry much more about Manchester City overtaking Arsenal and winning the Premier League. I think you probably should be able to relate to that, Will. 
But I genuinely worry much more about that than it's probably entirely healthy. I don't know. That might actually be a healthier perspective. I thought two English accents in this in this group was too many, right? I, I knew that I'm not that. English. I'm <laughs> Scottish. Be careful. <laughs> be very careful. <laughs> we'll leave we'll leave that aside for for the sake of the next question. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Kutlu. I am from Istanbul. Uh, that was an excellent talk, really. And my question is: um, in the Cold War. There were like at the first Cold War between U.S. and USSR. There were there were also some trade-offs. What would be the trade-offs uh, between U.S. and China? Well, I'll go first since I'm more committed to the Cold War analogy than than Martin is. Uh, by the way, I disagree with Martin. There's a very ideological dimension to this, but it's much more apparent if you're in China, uh, or for that matter, in, in Russia, where they constantly go on about. Uh, the difference between their their systems and our decadent and corrupt uh, democracy. Uh, so I think we shouldn't underestimate how ideological it looks, at least to the other side. So you're saying it is ideological, we're too decadent to see it. Right. I mean, we, we, we underestimate the extent to which they are criticizing our most fundamental values, uh, including democracy. Uh, indeed, particularly democracy, but also a whole range of, of more recent developments. Uh, you, Wait, you're saying that you're saying China is not in favor of classical liberalism. Correct, and Russia is extremely anti-woke and seeks to exploit conservative sentiment in or populist sentiment in the West by rolling out tropes that also work quite well on Fox News. So, I think we shouldn't underestimate the ideological character of Xi Jinping. He is a committed Marxist-Leninist. The Standing Committee on the Politburo is uh, far more wedded to uh, to Marxist-Leninist and even Stalinist ideology than people in the West realize, partly because people in the West are bamboozled by visits to Shanghai and, and Beijing and don't really pay attention to what the Chinese Communist Party says to itself. I mean, the trade-offs in Cold War One, I'm not sure how far they really included constraining uh, Germany and Japan, but there's no doubt that Germany and Japan were constrained in Cold War One. I'm not sure how big a threat they would otherwise have posed. The, the interesting point about Cold War One is the enormous economic benefits to the United States. Uh, the spin-offs from uh, defense tech were enormous. They included the internet. Let's not forget where that originated. Uh, so there are there are benefits as well as costs to Cold War. The costs took the form of what I've called the Third World's War, where large-scale conflict raged in what it's fashionable to call, call the Global South. And I think if one looks at the new Cold War, it's conceivable that there will be proxy wars, and maybe Ukraine's the first of a series. But it's also conceivable that there will be benefits. I'm sure US, uh, the US is investing more right now in artificial intelligence and quantum computing than it would have invested had we carried on believing in a win-win relationship uh, with China. So I think this is the right way to think about it. One must always remember, though, there is this danger in any Cold War that it becomes hot. In homegrown, in homegrown AI. Right, correct. Martin? My sense of what the trade-offs were in the uh, Cold War One was we often had, as we do in every war, to hold hands with some pretty slimy characters because they just happened to be on our side, right? And I mean, it, you know, let's face it, we were allied with Stalin, who's about as slimy as they come in, in World War II. And we had some some pretty seedy people in, 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 the, in the Cold War. Pinochet? Yeah, yeah. I, that was one. There were many others like that. 
Um, I, I, since I, I don't subscribe to the Cold War II concept, I, I, I honestly don't know what the parallel would be with that today. Um, except to say that ideologically speaking, the difference is the reason we sided with those people in the old days was because they stood in our minds and in their own mouths as bastions against communism, right? And I don't know a single country in the world that reads, um, Xi Jinping's pronouncements and goes, that's the way I want to be, right? I mean, it, it's not even a system. It's an evolved, I don't think they are Marxist-Leninists. There's some weird combination of a, a skeleton of a Marxist-Leninist totalitarian repressive state and a kind of like a mafia of people who have inherited from a second generation. I mean, and that it's a, it's a very weird thing that is not exportable. And that's the main thing that the, the communism in the old days, and people forget this, appealed to very, very pure souls. It was not bad people who went for it. it many, many idealists who did. So I, I it, the trade-off is, I think, in our benefit in, this, in, in that regard. Um, I see a question in the chat I'd like to ask, and this might be our last or maybe second to last question, depending on timing. Uh, so Adele Bala in the chat asks, what are your thoughts on the declining fertility rates? Is it the existential threat that some online seem to believe? Or could less people having children be a quote-unquote natural response to overpopulation, especially in countries like Japan? Well, it's a great question uh, to ask, Abdul. If you look at the, the China challenge, the most obvious uh, bit of reassuring information from an American or Western standpoint is that China's population is going to plunge it could fall by as much as half between now and the end of the century if you look at the latest United Nations population projections. And that's almost all driven by uh, by the decline in fertility, uh, which, uh, I mean, is, is hard to reverse with any conceivable policy. And this applies in other countries too, South Korea, Japan, you've already mentioned uh, in, your, in your question. But remember, this isn't globally true. Uh, because in Africa, uh, it hasn't yet happened, and therefore there's going to be a very sustained growth in Africa's population. And indeed, all the population increase in the world between now and the end of the century will be in Africa. Uh, what that leads to is anybody's guess. Uh, you could imagine Malthusian scenarios. You could imagine mass migration to Europe. Uh, but I think we have to remember that peak humanity is is not is not yet here as long as that uh, continues to be the case in 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 Africa. I don't have in you know, a Elon Musk's uh, fear that we're going to just die out through uh, a lack of uh, of procreative uh, energy and even. He, he can't compensate uh, for that. Um, that that seems that seems a fairly unlikely scenario uh, because I can can see if one takes a, a very long view, uh, no really good explanation for why fertility increased uh, in England uh, in the 18th century. That was an important prelude to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it's one of the most important demographic shifts that happens. There are big demographic shifts that also happen once modern medicine starts to make real inroads on infant mortality and family size changes. So this is a trend that I'm not yet going to turn into a kind of species ending uh, uh, secular phenomenon. It might well be that in, in changed conditions, you could see fertility recover in parts of the world. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out. 
Yeah, fertility is really unpredictable. Uh, that has been through history. Uh, I, 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 I would say that uh, I, the decline here, when again, when at least anecdotally, and I guess don't quote me on this, but that, that, that just a thought. It, it seems to me again when I talk to young people. It's the same thing that we were talking about before. If the world is going to end and if human beings are essentially destroyers of the earth and if we live in an unjust society, why on earth would you want to bring up a child into that? Um, so I think in a very strange and, and um, mysterious way, uh, our moral dilemmas that we've been talking about, our moral crisis almost, are tied up with our fertility cycles. Okay, one last question, but we will definitely cut you off if you take longer than 30 seconds. So um, who do we have, Connor? Well, good evening, everybody. It's, uh, that was absolutely fascinating talk, Martin. I'm really sorry it's another English accent for you to contend with. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, very quickly then, my question is, um, do you believe that China is keeping deliberately keeping the Ukraine war going and not using any influence it has with, uh, with Putin in order to deplete Western munitions so it allows uh, it, it to more easily attack Taiwan? And uh, as a quick follow-on from that, what would Europe's response be to any attack on Taiwan? Would we join in militarily in a response? Thank you, Damien. Uh, Damien, I love your suit, by the way. Neil, you want to take it? I don't think China's prolonged the war. I don't think China's in a position to stop the war. I think the United States may have prolonged the war, and, and indeed, it's arguable that Britain contributed to that at an early stage in the war, and I think there was a way uh, of uh, at least trying to stop it uh, that's one for the history books. We can't really say at this point, uh, uh, for sure. Uh, in the event of a war over Taiwan, uh, the United Kingdom's in many ways committed through AUKUS, although it's not clear how binding the commitment would be. I think the Europeans would try their hardest, the Germans in particular, to be non-aligned. Be very hard for them to do though, because their security depends on the United States. So they're not really non-aligned. Can, can we squeeze in just one question that isn't Cold War? We can only have five seconds left, <laughs> logically. We can do a haiku. Okay, rather than a five-second question, let's have Martin and Neil uh, leave us with some some parting thoughts. If I may, I, I yeah, I... I feel like uh, conversations like this tend to talk about um, tremendous social and political forces and so forth. And um, I always try to remember and to make people remember that, you know, there is such a thing as human agency and much of what the future will be like, it's not going to be determined by the internet. The internet doesn't have any will. So um, it's not going to be determined by uh, some vague ideological um, pronouncements. It's going to be determined by a lot of billions of individual choices that get made between now and the indefinite future. And, and I think that needs to be said because we tend to lose sight of that. I'll, I'll conclude with the following reflection. Martin earlier extolled the virtues of poetry, but let me uh, extol the virtues of prose. Uh, War and Peace, one of the great novels, is about the individual uh, and the tides of history. Everybody should read it. The thing I've read the most, uh, with the most pleasure recently has been uh, the novels of Thomas Hardy. And Hardy uh, constantly... I wrote my thesis on Hardy. There you go. Hardy constantly reminds us not only of agency, but contingency, that we as individuals can make one small decision that can have catastrophic or very benign consequences. 
it, the, the real essence of this conversation is how do we remain sane in an apparently crazy world bent on self-destruction? And the answer is to read Hardy. Talking <laughs> <laughs> of English. <laughs> you know, Harding in his... Uh first description of the heath in return of the native i think he says that the landscape suggested tragic possibilities which i think is a perfect way to wrap up this conversation maybe that will end up being our uh title for this episode if you have not yet read doom or revolt of the public uh shame on you if you haven't listened to our previous episodes with these two fine gentlemen shame or or as much shame on you no but seriously thank you all for joining us thank you martin thank you neil thank you connor thank you all of you for your questions and participation and um share us with your friends and enemies and stay sane thank you thanks everybody oh thank god